Chapter One: Egyptian and Phoenician Mathematics. The history of mathematics cannot, with certainty, be traced back to any school or period before that of the Ionian Greeks. The subsequent history may be divided into three periods, the distinctions between which are tolerably well marked. The first period is that of the history of mathematics under Greek influence. This is discussed in chapter two to seven. The second is that of the mathematics of the Middle Ages and Renaissance. This is discussed in chapter eight to thirteen. The third is that of modern mathematics. This is discussed in chapter fourteen to nineteen. Although the history of mathematics commences with that of the Ionian schools. There is no doubt that those Greeks who first paid attention to the subjects were largely indebted to the previous investigations of the Egyptians and the Phoenicians. Our knowledge of the mathematical attainment of those races is imperfect and partially conjectural, but such as it is, it is here briefly summarized. The definite history begins with the next chapter, on the subject of prehistoric mathematics. We may observe in the first place that though all early races which have left records behind them knew something of numeration and mechanics, and though the majority were also acquainted with the element of land surveying, yet the rules which they possessed were in general founded only on the result of observation and experiment, and were neither deduced from nor did they form any part of any science. The fact then that. Various nations in the vicinity of Greece had reached a high state of civilization. Does not justify us in assuming that they had studied mathematics. The only races with whom the Greeks of Asia Minor, amongst whom our history begins, were likely to have come into frequent contact, were those inhabiting the eastern littoral of the Mediterranean. And a Greek tradition uniformly assigned the special development of geometry to the Egyptians. And that of the science of numbers, either to the Egyptians or to the Phoenicians, I discussed these subjects separately. First, as to the science of numbers, so far as the acquirements of the Phoenicians on these subjects are concerned, it is impossible to speak with certainty. The magnitude of the commercial transactions of Tyre and Sidon necessitated a considerable development of arithmetic. To which it is probable the name of science might be properly applied. A Babylonian table of the numerical value of the squares of a series of consecutive integers has been found, and this would seem to indicate that property of numbers were studied. According to Strabo, the Tyrians paid particular attention to the science of numbers, navigation, and astronomy. They had, we know, considerable commerce with their neighbors and kinsmen, the Chaldeans. And a book says that they regularly supply the weights and measures used in Babylon. Now the Chaldeans had certainly paid some attention to arithmetic and geometry, as is shown by their astronomical calculation, and whatever was the extent of their attainment in arithmetic, it is almost certain that. The Phoenicians were equally proficient, while it is likely that the knowledge of the latter, such as it was, was communicated to the Greeks. 
On the whole, it seems probable that the early Greeks were largely indebted to the Phoenicians for the knowledge of practical arithmetic or the art of calculation, and perhaps also learned from them a few properties of the numbers. It may be worthy of note that Pythagoras was a Phoenician, and according to Herodotus, but this is more doubtful, Thales was also of that race. I may mention that the almost universal use of the abacus, or suanpan, rendered it easy for the ancient to add and subtract without any knowledge of theoretical arithmetic. These instruments will be described later in chapter 7. It will be sufficient here to say that they afford a concrete way of representing a number in the decimal scale, and enable the result of addition and subtraction to be obtained by a merely mechanical process. This, coupled with the means of representing the result in writing, was all that was required for practical purpose. We are able to speak more certainty on the arithmetic of the Egyptians. About 40 years ago, a heretic papyrus, forming part of the Rhind collection in the British Museum, was deciphered which has thrown considerable light on their mathematical attainment. The manuscript was written by a scribe named Amos at a date, according to the Egyptologist, considerably more than a thousand years before Christ. And it is believed to be itself a copy with emendations of a treatise more than a thousand years older. This work is called Directions of Knowing All Dark Things, and it consists of a collection of problems in arithmetic and geometry. The answer was given, but in general, not the process by which they are obtained. It appears to be a summary of rules and questions familiar to the priest. The first part deals with the reduction of fractions of the form 2 over 2n plus 1 to a sum of fractions, each of whose numerators is unity. For example, Amos states that 2 over 29 is the sum of 1 over 24, 1 over 58, 1 over 174, and 1 over 232. And 2 over 97 is the sum of 1 over 56, 1 over 679, and 1 over 776. In all the examples, n is less than 50. Probably he had no rules for forming the component fractions, and the answers given represent the accumulated experience of previous writers. In one solitary case, however, he has indicated his method. For after having asserted that two-thirds is the sum of one over two and one over six, he adds that, therefore, two-thirds of one-fifth is equal to the sum of a half of a fifth and a sixth of a fifth, that is to 1 over 10 plus 1 over 30. That so much attention was paid to fractions is explained by the fact that in early times their treatments was found difficult. The Egyptians and the Greeks simplified the problem by reducing a fraction to the sum of several fractions, in each of which the numerator was unity. The sole expectation to this rule being the fraction 2 over 3. This remains the Greek practice until the 6th century of our era. The Romans, on the other hand, 
generally kept the denominator constant and equal to 12, expressing the fraction approximately as so many twelfths. The Babylonian did the same in astronomy, except that they used 60 as the constant denominator. And from them through the Greeks, the modern division of a degree into 60 equal parts is derived. Thus, in one way or the other, the difficulty of having to consider changes in both the numerator and the denominator was evaded. Today, when using decimals, we often keep a fixed denominator, thus reverting to the Roman practice. After considering fractions, I must proceed to some examples of the fundamental process of arithmetic. In multiplication, he seems to have relied on repeated addition. Thus, in one numerical example, where he requires to multiply a certain number, say a, by 13, he first multiplied by 2 and gets 2a, then he doubled the results and gets 4a, then he again doubles the result and gets 8a, and lastly, he adds together a, 4a, and 8a. Probably division was also performed by repeated subtractions, but as he rarely explains the process by which he arrived at a result, this is not certain. After these examples, Amos goes on to the solution of some simple numerical equations. For example, he says, heap is sevenths, is whole, it makes nineteen. By which he means that the object is to find a number such that the sum of it and one-seventh of it shall be together equals to 19. And he gives as the answer 16 plus one-half plus one-eighth, which is correct. The arithmetical part of the papyrus indicates that he had some idea of algebraic symbols. The unknown quantity is always represented by the symbol which means a heap. Addition is sometimes represented by a pair of legs walking forwards, subtraction by a pair of legs walking backwards, or by a flight of arrows. And equality by the sign looks like our current equal sign, but with a half arrow at the bottom. The latter part of the book contains various geometrical problems to which I allude later. He concludes the work with some arithmetical, algebraical questions, two of which deal with arithmetical progressions and seem to indicate that he knew how to sum such a series. Second, as to the science of geometry. Geometry is supposed to have its origin in land surveying, but while it is difficult to say when the study of numbers and calculations some knowledge of which is essential in any civilized state, become a science. It is comparatively easy to distinguish between the abstract reasoning of geometry and the practical rules of the land surveyor. Some methods of land surveying must have been practiced for some very early times, but the universal tradition of antiquity asserted that the origin of geometry was to be sought in Egypt that it was not indigenous to Greece, and that it arose from the necessity of surveying, is rendered the more probable by the derivation of the word, from geo, the earth, and metric, I measure. Now the Greek geometricians 
as far as we can judge by their extant works, always dealt with the science as an abstract one. They thought for theorems which should be absolutely true, and at any rate in historical times, would have argued that to measure quantity in terms of a unit, which might have been incommensurable with some of the magnitudes considered, would have made their results merely approximations to the truth. The name does not therefore refer to their practice. It is not, however, unlikely that it indicates the use which was made of geometry among the Egyptians from whom the Greeks learned it. This also agrees with the Greek traditions, which in themselves appears probable. For Herodotus states that the periodical inundation of the Niles, which swept away the landmarks in the valley of the river, and by altering its course, increased or decreased the taxable value of the adjoining lands, rendered a tolerably accurate system of surveying indispensable, and thus led a systematic study of the subjects by the priests. We had no reason to think that any special attention was paid to geometry by the Phoenicians or other neighbors of the Egyptians. A small piece of evidence which tends to show that Jules has not paid much attention to it is to be found in the mistake made in their secret books, where it is stated that the circumference of a circle is three times its diameter. The Babylonians also reckoned that pi was equal to three. Assuming then that a knowledge of geometry was first derived by the Greeks from Egypt, we must next discuss the range and the nature of Egyptian geometry. Then some geometrical results were known at a date anterior to Amma's work seems clear if we admit, as we have no reason to do that centuries before it was written. The following method of obtaining a right angle was used in laying out the ground plan of certain buildings. The Egyptians were very particular about the exact orientation of their temples, and they had therefore to obtain with accuracy a north and a south line as also an east and west line. By observing the points on the horizon where a star rose and set, and taking a plane midway between them, they could obtain a north and a south line. To get an east and a west line, which had to be drawn at a right angle to this, certain professional rope fasteners were employed. This man used a rope A, B, C, D, divided by knots or marks at B and C, so that the lengths AB, BC, and CD were in the ratio 3 to 4 to 5. The length BC was placed along the north and the south line, and the packs P and Q inserted at the knots B and C. The piece BA, keeping it stretched all the time, was then rotated around the pack P, and similarly, the piece CD was rotated around the pack Q, until the ends A and D coincided. The points thus indicated was marked by pack R. The result was to form a triangle PQR whose size RP, PQ, 
QR were in the ratio 3 to 4 to 5. The angle of the triangle at P would then be a right angle, and the line PR would give an east and a west line. A similar method is constantly used at the present time by practical engineers for measuring a right angle. The property employed can be deduced as a particular case of Euclid Element Book 1, Proposition 48. And there is a reason to think that the Egyptians were acquainted with the result of this proposition. And of Euclid Element Book 1, Proposition 47, for triangles whose sides are in the ratio mentioned above. They must also have known that the latter proposition was true for an isosceles right-angle triangle, as this is obvious if a floor be paved with the tiles of that shape. But though these are interesting facts in the history of the Egyptian arts, we must not press them too far as showing that geometry was then studied as a science. Our real knowledge of the nature of Egyptian geometry depends mainly on the right papyrus. Amos commences that part of his papyrus which deals with geometry by giving some numerical instance of the contents of barns. Unluckily, we do not know what was the usual shape of an Egyptian barn, but where it is defined by three linear measurements, say A, B, and C. The answer is always given as if he had formed the expression A times B times parenthesis C plus 1 over C parenthesis. He next proceeds to find the area of certain rectilineal figures. If the text be correctly interpreted, some of these results are wrong. He then goes on to find the area of a circular field of diameter 12, no unit of length being mentioned, and I give the result as parenthesis d minus 1 over 9d parenthesis square, where d is the diameter of the circle. This is equivalent to taking 3.1604 as the value of pi, the actual value being very approximately 3.1416. Lastly, I must give some examples on pyramids. This long proved incapable of interpretation, but Cantor and Eisenhower have shown that Amos was attempting to find, by means of data obtained from the measurement of the external dimensions of a building, the ratio of certain other dimensions which could not be directly measured. His process is equivalent to determining the trigonometrical ratios of certain angles. The data and the results given agree closely with the dimensions of some of the existing pyramids. Perhaps all Amos geometrical results were intended only as approximations correct enough for practical purpose. It is noticeable that all the specimens of Egyptian geometry which we process deal only with particular numerical problems and not with the general theorems. And even if a result be stated as universally true, it was probably proved to be so only by a wide induction. We shall see later that Greek geometry was from its commencement deductive. 
There are reasons for thinking that Egyptian geometry and arithmetic made little or no progress subsequent to the date of Amma's work. And though for nearly 200 years after the time of Thales, Egypt was recognized by the Greeks as an important school of mathematics, it would seem that almost from the foundation of the Ionian school, the Greeks outstripped their former teacher. It may be added that Amos book gives us much that idea of Egyptian mathematics, which we should have gathered from statements about it by various Greek and Latin authors who lived centuries later. Previous to its translation, it was commonly thought that these statements exaggerated the acquirements of the Egyptians, and its discovery must increase the weight to be attached to the testimony of these authorities. We know nothing of the applied mathematics, if there were any, of the Egyptians or Phoenicians. The astronomical attainment of the Egyptians and the Chaldeans were no doubt considerable, though they were chiefly the result of observation. The Phoenicians are said to have confined themselves to studying what was required for navigation. Astronomy, however, lies outside the range of this book. I do not like to conclude the chapter without a brief mention of the Chinese, since at one time it was asserted that they were familiar with the sciences of arithmetic, geometry, mechanics, optics, navigation, and astronomy nearly 3,000 years ago, and a few writers were inclined to suspect, for no evidence was forthcoming, that some knowledge of this learning has filtered across Asia to the West. It is true that, at a very early period, the Chinese were acquainted with several geometrical, or rather architectural, implements, such as rules, squares, compasses, and level, with a few mechanical machines, such as the wheel and axle, that they knew of the characteristic property of the magnetic needle, and were aware that astronomical events occurred in cycles. But the careful investigation of L.A. Sijiju has shown that the Chinese made no serious attempt to classify or extend the few rules of arithmetic or geometry which they were acquainted, or to explain the causes of the phenomena which they observed. The idea that the Chinese had made considerable progress in theoretical mathematics seems to have been due to a misapprehension of the Jesuit missionary who went to China in the 16th century. In the first place, they failed to distinguish between the original science of the Chinese and the views which they found prevalent on their arrival, the latter being founded on the work and the teaching of Arab or Hindu missionaries who had come to China in the course of the 13th century or later, and while there introduced a knowledge of spherical trigonometry. In the second place, finding that one of the most important government departments was known as the Board of Mathematics. They supposed that its foundation was to promote and superintend mathematical studies in the empire. Its duties were really confined to the annual preparation of an almanac, the dates and predictions in which regulated many affairs both in public and domestic life. All extant specimens of these almanacs are defective, and in many respects inaccurate. 
The only geometrical theorem with which we can be certain that the ancient Chinese were acquainted is that in certain cases, namely when the ratio of the size is 3 to 4 to 5 or 1 to 1 to root 2, the area of the square described on the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle is equal to the sum of the areas of the squares described on the size. It is barely possible that a few geometrical theorems which can be demonstrated in a quasi-experimental way of superposition were also known to them. Their arithmetic was decimal in notation, but their knowledge seems to have been confined to the art of calculation by means of the suanpan and the power of expressing the results in writing. Our acquaintance with the early attainments of the Chinese, slightly though it is, is more complete than in the case of most of their contemporaries. It is thus especially instructive and serves to illustrate the fact that a nation may possess considerable skills in the applied arts while they are ignorant of the science on which those arts are founded. From the foregoing summary, it will be seen that our knowledge of the mathematical attainment of those who preceded the Greeks is very limited. But we may reasonably infer that, from one source or another, the early Greeks learned the use of the abacus for practical calculation, symbols for recording the results, and as much mathematics as is contained or implied in the Rhine papyrus. It is probable that this sums up their indebtedness to the other races. In the next six chapters, I shall trace the development of mathematics under Greek influence.